Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. summit in Dubai, here in the United Arab Emirates, this is Democracy Now! There were 30 people inside the house. 20 of them were children. We went to sleep. All of a sudden, what happened to us, we don't know. The fire hit us, and like you see, all of it collapsed on top of us. Israel's attack on Gaza is now being described as one of the worst assaults on any civilian population in recent times, as Israeli tanks drive deeper into Khan Yunus and the Palestinian death toll tops 16,000. We'll go to Gaza for the latest. Then here at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai, Democracy Now! attempts to question the UAE oil CEO who's presiding over the climate talks. Can you answer a question from the press? Dr. Al-Jabbar, can you tell us why there are 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists here? Dr. Al-Jabbar, can you tell us if there should be a fossil fuel phase out? We'll get an update on the UN Climate Summit and look at how the UAE is buying up land across Africa as part of an initiative called Blue Carbon. And we'll speak to a leading Russian environmentalist as Vladimir Putin visits the UAE and Saudi Arabia today. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates from the UN Climate Summit. These are the headlines. In Gaza, Israeli tanks are pushing further into the southern city of Khan Yunus as its deadly ground assault continues and Palestinian casualties rise. The few functioning hospitals remain completely swamped with an influx of injured people, many of them children. The WHO called the assault on Gaza, quote, humanity's darkest hour. At least 16,200 Palestinians in Gaza have been killed since October 7th. The UN's top humanitarian relief coordinator said Israel's attack in southern Gaza has been as devastating as in the north, with the apocalyptic conditions preventing the delivery of aid. Some 85 percent of the Gazan population has now been displaced. We suffered from the war of cannons and escaped it to arrive at the war of starvation. Now we cannot find food. We make the food by ourselves. We divide one tomato between all of us. There is no safe place. They finish off one place at a time and only God knows where we will end up. Are we going to be alive? Are we going to be martyrs? We do not know what our destiny is. Today I eat, but I do not know if I'm going to eat tomorrow. Meanwhile, 
An Israeli military spokesperson appeared on CNN Tuesday and touted a report released this week which said the IDF killed some 5,000 Hamas fighters, which would equal roughly two civilians killed for every Hamas member. You will find that that ratio is tremendous, tremendously positive and perhaps unique in the world. The comments were swiftly condemned, and the accuracy of the figures have apparently not been verified outside the Israeli military. The Biden administration announced Tuesday it would ban visas for Israeli settlers involved in surging West Bank violence. Israeli soldiers and settlers have killed at least 260 Palestinians and wounded over 3,000 Palestinians in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. The U.S. government's rare rebuke of Israel comes as the Senate is voting today on a $106 billion spending package, which would send more military funding to Ukraine and Israel. Senate Republicans vowed to block the package over its lack of funding for so-called border security. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders spoke out against the bill on the Senate floor Monday. I do not believe we should be appropriating over $10 billion for the right-wing extremist Netanyahu government to continue its current military approach. What the Netanyahu government is doing is immoral. It is in violation of international law, and the United States should not be complicit. Despite his condemnation of Israeli violence, Sanders has refused to call for a ceasefire in Gaza. Thirteen House Democrats and one Republican, Congressmember Thomas Massey, voted against a new resolution explicitly equating anti-Zionism with anti-Semitism Tuesday. Ninety-two Democrats voted present. The resolution also states the phrase from the river to the sea, a popular slogan at protests for Palestinian rights, is a call for the, quote, eradication of the state of Israel and the Jewish people, unquote. Rashida Tlaib, the only Palestinian-American Congress member, wrote, quote, opposing the policies of the government of Israel and Netanyahu's extremism is not anti-Semitic. Speaking up for human rights and a ceasefire to save lives should never be condemned, she said. This comes amidst a mounting offensive by APAC, that's the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, to unseat progressives who speak up for Palestinian rights. Earlier today, Westchester County Executive George Latimer, who's been courted by APAC, announced he's launching a primary challenge against New York Congressmember Jamal Bowman. Last month, two Michigan Democrats running for the U.S. Senate revealed APAC offered them $20 million to instead primary Congressmember Tlaib for her House seat. Nasser Beydoun, a Lebanese-American businessman, and Hill Harper, a Hollywood actor-turned-politician, both turned APAC down. Meanwhile, a new book by journalist Ryan Grimm reports an APAC representative approached Congressmember Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez with an offer to raise $100,000 after her stunning 2018 win. The fundraising was presented as an opening salvo to, quote, start the conversation about AOC's position on Israel. The U.N. Monday heard accounts of sexual assaults during Hamas's October 7th attack on Israel. Speakers criticized the U.N. and others for failing to promptly investigate and condemn sexual crimes. 
former Facebook executive Sheryl Sandberg, who helped organize the event, was a key speaker. Hillary Clinton sent videotape remarks. President Biden Tuesday condemned Hamas for the alleged attacks, which the group has denied. The nonprofit Physicians for Human Rights Israel last month released a report detailing survivor accounts of sexual assaults, which it said were widespread on October 7th. This is Orit Soliciano, head of Israel's Association of Rape Crisis Centers. Most of the people I assume that have passed this kind of terror are dead because they were shot. Uh, there are there is information from people who saw what happened, but everybody should understand there should not be any anticipation that the survivors will come and speak out loud with a face. It's not like me too. This is a horrible and different thing. Here in the United States. 400 military nominees were swiftly confirmed by the Senate Tuesday, just hours after Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville lifted his 10-month blockade on the majority of appointments. Tuberville had been protesting a completely unrelated Pentagon policy that pays out-of-state travel costs for its staff to receive abortion care. He finally relented after mounting pressure from fellow Republicans and threats from Democrats to temporarily change Senate rules in order to bypass the blockade. In related news, the military's top sexual assault prosecutor has been fired after an email surfaced in which he undermined assault allegations of survivors. Brigadier General Warren Wells sent the email to staff in 2013, which read in part, expect no commander to be able to make objective decisions involving allegations as long as Congress and our political masters are dancing by the fire of misleading statistics and one-sided, repetitive misinformation by those with an agenda, he said. In Texas, a pregnant woman has filed an emergency lawsuit seeking to terminate her non-viable pregnancy. 31-year-old Kate Cox is 20 weeks pregnant with a fetus that's been diagnosed with trisomy 18, a fatal condition, but is unable to get the abortion she needs due to Texas's sweeping abortion ban. It's the first legal complaint filed in Texas since the ban was enacted and reads, quote, Ms. Cox's physicians have informed her that their hands are tied and she will have to wait until her baby dies inside her or carry the pregnancy to term, at which point she will be forced to have a third C-section only to watch her baby suffer until death. In Nigeria, President Bola Tinubu ordered an investigation following a miscalculated military drone strike that killed at least 85 civilians Sunday in the village of Tudunbiri in the northwest Kaduna state. The victims were gathering for a religious celebration marking the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. This is a survivor recounting the tragic attack. We were celebrating Malud when the airplane came and dropped the bomb. Some died, some got injured, and we all ran into the house. When the men in the village heard what happened, they came out to check, and that was when they dropped the second one and more people died. Drones are estimated to have erroneously killed some 400 civilians since 2017 in attacks that were targeting armed groups in the north of Nigeria. 
And Honduran authorities have issued an arrest warrant for the suspected mastermind of the 2016 murder of indigenous environmental leader Berta Cáceres. Daniela Tala Midense is the former financial manager of the hydroelectric company DESA. Berta Cáceres was assassinated as she led the fight against DESA's massive hydroelectric dam on a river in southwestern Honduras that's sacred to the Lenca people. Last year, David Castillo, a former U.S.-trained Honduran military officer and businessman, was sentenced to over 22 years for his role in ordering and planning Berta's assassination. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. We begin today's show in Gaza. As Israeli tanks are moving into the center of Khan Yunus, Gaza's second largest city after days of intense shelling and airstrikes. Palestinian health officials say the death toll in Gaza has topped 16,200, including over 6,600 children. This is a resident of Khan Yunus speaking after Israel bombed his home. There were 30 people inside the house. 20 of them were children, children aged 15 days, one year, three years, four years. We set up a place for them to sleep throughout the bombardment. We put them to sleep. We went to sleep. All of a sudden, what happened to us, we don't know. The fire hit us, and like you see, all of it collapsed on top of us. None of us made it out completely okay. Everybody is hurt. How and why? We don't even understand what happened ourselves. We rushed to the hospitals to check on the children and came back this morning to check the house. Look at this. I swear, we don't even know how we made it out alive. On Tuesday, Jan Eglin, the Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council, released a statement saying, quote, the pulverizing of Gaza now ranks amongst the worst assaults on any civilian population in our time and age. Each day we see more dead children and new depths of suffering for the innocent people enduring this hell, he said. We're joined now by Youssef Hamash, advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council. He's joining us today from Rafa. Yusuf, thanks so much for being with us. If you can start off by talking about what's happening right now, from Khan Yunus, where you were, to Rafa, where you have fled now. Thanks for hosting me, Amy. Unfortunately, after seven days of the humanitarian wars, we weren't expecting that we will see this madness getting increased. The madness is getting bigger and bigger. And after directly after the humanitarian wars, the bombing started mainly in the south, and the Israeli land operations started taking place in Khan Yunis, and they turned Gaza into three pieces. While it used to be cut into two parts, now it's three parts. So we have. Gaza City and the middle area and Khan Yunus and Rafah and as the, the ground operation started eastern part of Khan Yunus and they asked the residents to flee to Rafah. That's what forced us to flee for the third time now to Rafah and hundreds of thousands of people had to do this, to take this choice to flee into Rafah and to build these small tents made, in by, made it by wooden sticks and plastic under this harsh weather and it became really crazy situation suddenly and we had to witness the same 
as we witness in the northern part of Gaza when the military operation, even the war started at 12, after the war started in 12th of, of October when they asked us to flee to the south. And we didn't have other option and we fled to the south, to Khan Yunus, and now we found ourselves doing it again. Hopefully it's going to be the last time. Unfortunately, the humanitarian situation is catastrophic here. People are using any place as a shelter. People living on sidewalks and streets and any empty area. They found it. They put anything to cover their heads and they consider it as a shelter without any means of protection. And it's, it's a horrible situation that I don't think I have the ability to describe it. If you see it by your own eyes, you'll be shocked. I, we never witnessed such horror. In the, you, and you can see it in people's face. They, they, they are in a miserable situation, doesn't have any option to do. All what they do is looking for their safety, fleeing from a place to another place. Yusuf, it's not usual uh, in most situations where the journalists themselves um, are trying to save their own families and their own lives as you report on the entire situation. Um, if you can track your own journey with your family, I think some 60 journalists, Gazan, Palestinian journalists, about that number have been killed in these last weeks, including the head of the Gaza Journalists Association, so many cameramen and reporters. But if you can start with your journey where you left first north and then going home to Jabalia and go from there and why in each situation the terror and the um, uh, and the destruction that you left behind. So at the beginning of the on 7th of October, I had to flee my house because I live in Bitlahia, which is more near to the border. And usually uh, based on our previous experience from wars and escalation, it's the first areas to be targeted, and I thought it's better for me to take my children and my extended family to Jabalia camp, which is the center of the north, yani con convincing myself that it's going to be a bit more safe. And we, since the, the moment that we, I did this decision, I left everything behind. I didn't care what I'm going to lose. I just will look, I was looking for the safety of my family. Uh, the Two, three days after the war, my house was targeted, then my parents' house was targeted, and the other house of my brother was targeted. And on the 12th of we had, I had to stay in my grandparents' house in Jabalia, and the 12th of, 12th of October, we start to receive these phone calls from Israelis and settlers just threatening us and warning us about what's coming. And then I had to decide to flee again from Jabalia to the south, based on what they asked us. And again, our responsibility towards our children and our extended families forced us to take these options. We fled to Khan Yunis without anything, literally. We had to start our new life. And I was lucky because I have some relatives there, so I had to, I managed to find a roof to cover my head. And I wasn't expecting that we will live this horror again, and we had to take this option again for the third time to go to Rafah. But unfortunately, in Rafah, it's, we don't have that option to have a roof to cover our heads and, and since two days I'm trying surfing around Rafah looking for any place to shelter my family and unfortunately, unfortunately until now I'm, I didn't succeed to find a place today I had to go to build a tent for my family finding a safe place as they, they, they call it in the Mawasi area that's going to be much safe there and we, we follow the, what's the instruction that the, what we receive, and I had to do the, the same as the other hundreds of thousands of other people in Gaza who had to take that option also. So I had to build a tent, 
I don't know how we will manage to fit in it, but this is the option that we have. And But especially the two days when the military operation started in Khan Yunis, the horror that we, say, we saw from the bombardment, the non-stopping bombardment, I was calculating for the, the timing between each missile was eight seconds. Imagine we were living in an earthquake. And that's what, again, always putting us in a situation in front of our children that we are useless to protect them. We cannot even provide protection for our children and our our, my, my sisters, for example, I felt very, very useless in front of them because I cannot do anything for them. So we had to take that option, convincing ourselves again that we will be safe. I'm pretty sure there is no place safe in Gaza, but we'll do as, yeah. what, as much as yani, I, I will take whatever it takes. I'll do it to protect my family. Now, you're not a journalist. You're an aid worker. Um, you are an uh, advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council. Um, but your descriptions of what is happening there are so critical. How do you do your work and the other 50 or so Norwegian Refugee Council workers do their work in Gaza? Um, as they're being forced to flee. And are you trying to get now over the border from Rafa into Egypt? Yeah, Nia, we are trying to do our best because this is our role and this is why we are here. But unfortunately, we are in the same situation like everyone's here. During the humanitarian pause, we were assisting the situation, trying to do distribution plan because we're trying to help as much as we can people in need. The majority of the, the entire population in Gaza are in need. To, to, so you have to understand the situation in general, half of the population before 7th October was relaying a humanitarian aid, imagining adding this catastrophic situation to the need of people. The entire population in Gaza is in need. And if you combine us all as humanitarian actors, we cannot cover the need that we are having here. We use these seven days to manage to have our trucks entered through Rafah and to do our distribution plan and yani, trying to assist as much as we can. But then we found ourselves in this circle of violence again. And unfortunately, even in front of the situation now, we are useless. We cannot protect ourselves even as a humanitarian workers. There is no protection for any of us. We are all in Gaza under the same circumstances. We are trying, but uh, yani, the situation is preventing us. And trust me, many of my, uh, my colleagues are had to sleep Can you in the talk streets. about what? Sorry, go ahead, Demi. Can you talk about what kind of aid is getting through and isn't getting through, and what it means when you have something like 1.8, 1.9 million Palestinians out of what 2.3 million who are on the run, who are internally displaced. Honestly, Amy, the, what all of us as a humanitarian actors can do is that, uh, like a drop in the ocean of needs here. What and not yeah, we keep asking for allowing more and more trucks of aid to enter, but it's too political, and you, 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 everyone understands the situation now. They allow on a day, there is no even uh, an accurate number for how many truck per day we can get through Rafa. It's too political situation which is preventing us to understand. Uh, trust me, in, in the past few days, we were chasing our trucks. We were trying to find 
solution, how to get it through Rafah, manage it, store it in some place, then trying to distribute it as, as fast as we can because we understand it's nothing comparing to the needs. So we are trying to do our best. Even if it was few people that we can assist and help, it is something. But even to reach that small something is not easy. It's almost impossible because of the situation that we are living in. The amount of aid that coming to Gaza is literally not, not tangible and is not affecting the need. It's not, the, it's not really affecting the amount of need that we are having in Gaza. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Yusuf Hamash, advocacy officer in Gaza for the Norwegian Refugee Council. He fled Khan Yunus earlier this week, joining us now from Rafa. Uh, he was in Beit Lahia originally, fled to the Jabalia refugee camp, then to Khan Yunus, then to Rafa near the border crossing with Egypt. Coming up, Democracy Now! A questions, attempts to question the head of the UAE state oil company, who is presiding over the U.N. Climate Summit. Stay with us. democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit in Dubai, here in the United Arab Emirates. The president of the Climate Summit, UAE oil CEO Sultan Al-Jaber, is facing ongoing criticism for his recent comments claiming there's no science to back up calls to phase out fossil fuels in order to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. During a recent Zoom call with former Irish President Mary Robinson and others, Sultan al-Jaber said a full phase-out of fossil fuels would, quote, take the world back into caves. There is no science uh, out there or no scenario out there that says that the phase-out of fossil fuel is what's going to achieve 1.5. 1.5 is my North Star. Please help me, show me a roadmap for a phase out of fossil fuel that will allow, that will allow for socio 
for sustainable socio-economic development, unless you want to take the world back into caves. Those were the words of Sultan al-Jaber, the president of this year's climate summit, and yes, the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company called Adnoc. His comments directly contradict those of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres, who says a phase out of fossil fuel is a critical step. The science is clear. The 1.5 degree limit is only possible if we ultimately stop burning all fossil fuels. Not reduce, not abate, phase out with a clear time frame aligned with 1.5 degrees. On Tuesday, the UN Climate Summit President, Sultan al-Jaber, held a town hall meeting just behind me, inside the UN Climate Summit here in Dubai. We attempted to get in right after our show, but we were told the press wasn't allowed inside. I tried to ask him a question on the way in. We were then directed to an overflow room buildings away, but raced back to try to question Sultan al-Jaber as he left the town hall meeting. Dr. al-Jaber, do you believe in a fossil fuel phase-out? Can you answer a question from the press? Dr. Al-Jaber, can you tell us why there are 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists here? Dr. Al-Jaber, can you tell us if there should be a fossil fuel phase-out? Dr. Al-Jaber, one question. I can't keep up with you. He's on call, man. He's on call. It's okay. It's okay. I know. He's not doing his job. I'm doing mine. Please come to the press conference, please. When is the press conference? Tomorrow. What time? Uh, they will let you know. Please. Okay. okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> You're a strong lady. Come to the press conference, please. Okay, I will, but I'm going to try to get an answer here. Okay, I will come to the press conference. Please, please. Thank you. Dr. Al-Jaber, could you just answer one question from the press? <laughs> Dr. Al-Jaber, one question from the press. People want to know why there are a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists at this conference. Thank you. Oh, excuse me. No, stop. No, please. No press at this place. No press, please. No press at this Thank you. Okay. Are you in security? Yes, you know, I'm looking for you in general. Really, oh, what is uh, your name? Uh, Eve. Oh, Eve. Really, madame, you are incredible. Uh, she is incredible. So yes, no, she is incredible. Yes, 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 yes. What is your media, madame? Democracy We do a, show, a public television radio show called okay. Democracy Now! Around the World. Are you come from uh, USA? New York. New York. Oh, New York, okay. Yes. Oh, incredible. Okay. What is your name? Eve. 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 And what's your last name? Sorry? Eve. <laughs> Eve, sorry. Eve, Eve. No, thank you, madam. On to you soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, I tried to ask the president of the COP, who happens to be um, the head of the largest, one of the largest oil companies in the world, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. It's remarkable that the head of the oil company is the head of the UN Climate Summit. If he's for a fossil fuel phase out um, in the past, he has said no. And also why there's a record number of fossil fuel lobbyists here. I tried. Anyway, they say there'll be a news conference tomorrow, so we'll try again then. Well, in fact, there was no news conference called today by Sultan al-Jaber. Um, uh, the, what the aide said wasn't true. It's past 5 o'clock today, so well, I guess there are still a few more hours. 
But to talk more about the U.N. Climate Summit, we're joined by Harjit Singh, head of global political strategy with Climate Action Network with the Fossil Fuel Nonproliferation Treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels and support a just transition. He's based in New Delhi, India, but is joining us here from Dubai. It's great to have you back on the show. Um, let's just talk about the significance of what I was questioning um, uh, Dr. Al-Jabbar about. Uh, one, this record number of lobbyists. I was just speaking to a young activist, said she's actually not, uh, there are far fewer proportionally climate activists here than at previous summits because so many of them were limited in getting credentials. And yet it's the largest UN climate summit ever with the by far largest number of um, oil, fossil fuel lobbyists. How does that affect these talks and what needs to be done here? Thank you very much, Amy, for having me again on your show. Always a pleasure. Uh, it is deeply, deeply problematic to see how fossil fuel lobbyists are taking over these climate talks. And that's exactly the concern that we have been raising right from the day one when it was announced that UAE is going to be the host of climate talks and we got uh, an oil executive leading uh, the conversation here. And this is our fear really coming true. We can't just allow fossil fuel industry to define what needs to happen here. We want governments to regulate these industry that has caused the problem in the first place. And we are here to demand that we need fossil fuel phase out in a just and equitable manner. And that language is what we are expecting to appear in the next few days, because that's the message that we have to send to the world, which is already facing climate crisis. We cannot afford any other language which creates any confusion or leaves any kind of loopholes that fossil fuels can still continue. And we just cannot do that as we see how rising temperatures are wrecking the planet. He said a fossil fuel phase out. The other question I was asking him um, <clears throat> uh, would mean, well, taking the world back into caves. What is the sustainable answer? We already have renewable energy, really taking it to a level where it is comparable to fossil fuel investments. The point here is that how we can use those solutions. You know, the reason fossil fuel industry is surviving because of the subsidies, and I must remind everybody that as per the report of IMF, the subsidies are to the tune of $11 million per minute. Let me repeat, $11 million per minute. And if you add all the externalities, fossil fuel industry cannot survive. On the other hand, you see investments not going sufficiently to the renewable energy industry. And that's what is needed. So we have solutions, but we are not investing enough in the solutions, and that's why fossil fuel industry is surviving. And that's what we need to be questioning. Science is absolutely clear that we need to phase out fossil fuels. We need to do that in a just and equitable manner. So, Harjit Singh, you're wearing blue today, if you can explain why you're doing that. And also, you just came from a loss and damage protest. We've started talking about loss and damage uh, again this week at the U.N. Climate Summit. But talk about why that was the focus of your protest outside. As activists, we are wearing blue today, and that's a color we associate with uh, loss and damage. Uh, we did that last year in our protest, and just uh, uh, two hours ago, we actually protested saying that how we've got the fund, which was historic, uh, getting it on the very first day of COP, unprecedented, but it's not enough. The reality is that we only got a couple of hundred million dollars as a pledge when the need is 
hundreds of billions of dollars. That's the scale. People are suffering right now, and we are not getting sufficient money to fill the funds. And again, say what it means, what it would be used for, who would pay into it, and who would get that support. Let's understand that we got the convention on climate change 30 years ago. We were expecting the emission reductions to happen to a level where we will not be seeing this crisis, but we did not see any uh, reduction in the emissions. We did not also provide support to communities and countries uh, to adapt, to be more prepared to deal with disasters. And here we are seeing climate emergency you know, all around us in, in the form of increasing floods and raging wildfires and sea levels rising. People are losing their homes, their farms, their income, and they are being displaced. There is no support available from this system. So after fighting for 30 years, we eventually got this decision last year in Shamal Sheikh at COP27 and on the very first day of COP28, finally the decision is also to operationalize, which means that now we will be able to support people who are losing their homes so that they can rebuild their lives and livelihoods. But the money is not enough. So yes, it is historic that we have been able to establish and it's a victory of climate justice movement that puts so much of pressure on the leaders so that we get this fund. But we don't want to create another fund which is not enough or which is an empty shell. We need to be responding to the calls of people who are facing this crisis right now, how they can restart their lives and rebuild their homes. What does global stock trade mean? So global stock take is a process that was agreed uh, in uh, 2015 uh, as part of Paris Agreement because when the pledges were uh, put together, it was clear that we are looking at a three degree of warming, which is going to be catastrophic uh, by the end of century. Now, we required a process so that we can continuously ramp up and ratchet up our ambition. So this is a very unique process. If you look at many international agreements, don't have it. So 2023 is the first year when the global stock take means we are looking at where we are and then we are also going to determine how we need to increase our ambition over the next few years so that we can stay below the target of 1.5 degrees temperature rise Celsius and we don't cross that threshold. So it's a very important process. In fact, as we speak, the discussions are happening on this global stock take, which includes all the elements, talk about mitigation, adaptation, and loss and damage, and most importantly, finance and technology. How does climate change affect India? How does climate change uh, play out every day? Well, India is a large country with 7,500 kilometer long coastline and use talk of any uh, geoclimatic zone India has, and it's extremely vulnerable. In fact, it has been ranked one of the top five and top ten countries over the last few years in terms of vulnerability. And we are seeing, we have seen some uh, you know, heat waves which were unprecedented in the last few years. We have seen how uh, floods are becoming far more intense. We have seen some devastating storms and people getting displaced. And there are now studies which say that India is going to lose its GDP by 3% over the next few years and, and how it's going to lose billions of dollars uh, over the next few years and those impacts are already happening. So countries are vulnerable. They are uh, suffering, you know, they are without any uh, reason because they are not the ones who have caused the problem in the first place. So, uh, and there are many more developing countries who are in worse situation than India. We have 30 seconds left. It's yours. 
Well, I would say we have to make sure that we uh, get a decision on fossil fuel phase out because even when we talk about loss and damage, we know very clearly more fossil fuels is equals more loss and damage. So we've got this decision, but unless we address the cause of the climate crisis, which is fossil fuels, we will not be able to uh, deal with the climate emergency. And we have to ramp up adaptation uh, finance because people need to be now prepared to deal with disasters and also they need to get support when they are uh, suffering. So we need to work across the board on all these three pillars of climate action. Harjit Singh, head of global political strategy with Climate Action Network on the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty, a global initiative to phase out fossil fuels and support a just transition, usually based in New Delhi, India. Coming up next, we look at how the UAE is buying up land across Africa as part of an initiative called Blue Carbon. Back in a minute. If You Don't Want Me by the Tanzanian Nuta Jazz Band. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to look what's being called the new scramble for Africa. The United Arab Emirates, where we are right now, is using its vast oil money to buy up the rights to land in many African countries in order to sell carbon credits to major polluters. Just over a year ago, in 2022, a member of the UAE royal family set up a private investment company called Blue Carbon to facilitate the deals. The company's negotiating to purchase the rights to about a tenth of Liberia's landmass, a fifth of Zimbabwe, and swaths of Kenya, Zambia, and Tanzania. The Guardian newspaper reports the deal involves land about the size of the United Kingdom. Blue Carbon would then sell carbon credits linked to forests preserved on this land. Many critics have likened the UAE's plan to a new form of colonialism. We're joined now by Mohamed Addo the director of the climate and energy think tank Power Shift Africa. In September, his group published a report titled The Africa Carbon Markets Initiative, A Wolf in Sheep's Clothing. Mahad, welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much. For Can you me. explain what this blue carbon initiative is, buying up a tenth, a fifth of the land of these countries? 
So what they're doing effectively after failing to mitigate at the source is by what they call carbon credits, but in fact those are just permits to pollute. So rather than actually containing emissions and cutting them at the source so that we can decarbonize and be able to help the world hold climate heating to below 1.5 degrees, what they're doing is buying large tracts of land in Africa so that they can have a pipeline of you know, permits that gives them the right to continue to pollute the source. So if you look at it, you know, the continent of Africa, with its 17% of the global population, accounts for less than 4% of the emissions. But we're suffering fast and worse the impact of climate change. And the rich world have promised Africa and other developing countries climate finance to help grow in a climate-compatible way. They failed to deliver that finance. Now they want to basically buy on the cheap African lands so that they have a pipeline of carbon credits. So what happens to the people who live on those lands? Let's say, let's look at Liberia. They buy up a tenth of the land, the UAE, this private company. So what they're effectively doing is displacing Africans off their land so that they can actually be able to attain the right to continue to pollute. Here, so, or wherever it, the company so, is. That's so getting. all these fossil fuel companies and the rich world have promised the world that they will help prevent dangerous interference with our climate system. What that requires is for them to actually cut emissions, massive cuts in emissions, so that we can be able to contain the rise in emissions. So they're failing to do that. They've also failed to provide the climate finance that the developing world requires. Now, to add insult to the injury, they now want to forcefully displace our people off their land so that they can actually be able to have a secure pipeline of permits to continue to pollute. So of this the permits is, to pollute. That is what they are. So don't buy this false idea that they are buying carbon credits. There's nothing called carbon credits. What they're doing is actually commodifying nature and in the process of commodifying nature, give people cramps so that they can actually continue to pollute. And, and so the developing countries who have been promised fina- climate finance that has not been delivered are now being asked to again contribute to the climate actions that the world so much requires, but through a false and a dangerous destruction. So, Mohamed Ado, presumably the country has to agree to this. What does the Liberian government gain from this? So this is a collision between our political elites and the historic polluters. So what they do is give cramps uh, to these countries so that they can be able to actually attain the right over that land in the name of uh, a carbon credit. And what a carbon credit is basically is, is an imaginary commodity, a one ton of emission that is actually avoided or cut through a project in Africa so that the companies in the rich world will continue to pollute can then offset their emissions by, by buying those permits. So it's actually a dangerous destruction. What we need today in the world is to decarbonize, massive decarbonization. So rather than actually massively decarbonizing... And how do you decarbonize? So the bottom line is you need to actually phase out fossil fuels. So the reason UAE are buying these lands is so that they can offset their emissions and continue to sustain this false notion that we can continue to increase our emissions but buy on the cheap African land so that we can continue to sustain this false fossil economy. 
Your organization is called Power Shift Africa. How do you shift the power? And are you alleging that with these different countries, we'll put up the map. I mean, it's not just Liberia, it's Tanzania, it's Kenya, it's Zambia, it's Zimbabwe, that government officials are on the take? 60 years ago, African countries attained their independence. We were able to kick you know, colonizers out of our land. What they're doing now is basically introducing this new form of colonialism where they basically grab our land, but without permission, so that they can continue to emit. And Africa is on the front line, suffering first and worst the impact of climate change. What African people require is for us to decarbonize the global economy. Just like the colonists have structured African societies and economies as a place where they will source cheap raw materials, now Africa is being turned to be the place where they will source cheap permits to continue to pollute. Well, we're going to continue this discussion tomorrow with Nemo Bassi, another African um, leader in the fight to preserve the environment. Uh, he from Nigeria, Mohamed Ado, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Director of the Climate and Energy Think Tank, PowerShift Africa. We'll link to the report, the Africa Carbon Markets Initiative, A Wolf in Sheep's Closing, Clothing. We are broadcasting from COP28 in Dubai, the United Arab Emirates, as Russian President Vladimir Putin has also arrived in the country today, but will not attend the summit. This is Putin's first trip to the region since Russia attacked Ukraine. He'll also travel to Saudi Arabia to meet with the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Putin faces an arrest warrant from the International Criminal Court over war crimes in Ukraine. But neither Saudi Arabia nor the UAE have signed the International Criminal Court, the ICC treaty, so they're not obligated to detain him. Today, activists here at COP28 protested Putin's visit with signs that read, your power is coming to an end and fossil fuel dictators out. And Ukrainians also accuse Putin of committing environmental crimes in their country. This comes as Russia welcomed a U.S.-led initiative to triple global nuclear power capacity in a rare agreement as 21 nations propose ways to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, including France, the U.K., and Ukraine, in addition to the U.S. At COP28 Tuesday, that's um, today, um, uh, yesterday, U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry launched an international engagement plan to boost nuclear fusion that involves 35 nations. I believe, based on friends I have, people I respect, evidence that I've read, that there is potential in fusion to revolutionize our world and to change all of the options that are in front of us and provide the world with abundant and clean energy. For more, we're joined here at COP28 by Vladimir Slivyak, co-chair of the leading Russian environmental organization, EcoDefense. He won the 2021 Right Livelihood Award, the Alternative Nobel Peace Prize, for defending the environment and mobilizing grassroots opposition to the coal and nuclear industries in Russia. He has left Russia now. Where do you live right now? In Vladimir? Germany. You live in Germany. Um, I want to start off by asking you about this initiative that's really being pushed by the United States. Uh, so methane, um, fossil fuel emissions, they're really being um, uh, 
cut that, the push is to cut them down. Mm -hmm. And people like John Kerry, the climate envoy from the United States, are saying nuclear is the answer. Well, I think he's wrong, and I think it's a big mistake by Biden administration to push for it. And there are three reasons for this. First of all, we need action on climate now, but nuclear power, even if it brings some effect, it will be very little effect, and we have to wait for quite a long time, like 20 or 30 years, until there will be some effect. Well, the second thing is that it's risky technology. It produces nuclear waste that will be dangerous for thousands of years, and our next generations will have to pay for this nuclear waste to make it safe for safe storage. How and, have you and, seen? A, and the third thing is that nuclear power is the most expensive among all sources of energy. So, like, when you promote nuclear power, you have to understand that it's diverting resources from renewable energy, and the renewable energy is the real, the most efficient answer to climate change. So it's interesting. I mean, you have to say the, the least, the U.S. and Russia at loggerheads, for example, over the Russian invasion of Ukraine. But here they don't disagree. Well, this is very, like, uh, disturbing and disappointing thing because we, we haven't seen the U.S. doing uh, promotion of nuclear at previous COPs. Uh, but unfortunately, they started to do what Russians been doing for quite a long time, promoting nuclear, which is clearly a false solution uh, to climate change. Biden did not come to the U.N. climate summit. Apparently, um, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, is not either. But he did come to the UAE. He was in Abu Dhabi this morning. He's going to Saudi Arabia. Were you surprised by this? This is a rare trip outside of Russia. What do you think he's here for? Well, I was very surprised because Vladimir Putin was now really going internationally for quite a long time. I think uh, there are two important things for Putin here. One is oil, uh, and they're talking about uh, like oil prices and how they regulate oil uh, drilling and sell, sale of oil around the world to keep prices up. And the second thing is, of course, I think it's weapon. Russia needs more weapon. It, it's not producing enough weapon uh, for war in Ukraine. No. No, well, not as much as uh, using in Ukraine. Um, and um, I think uh, Putin will be looking for some new supplies from Arab countries. Why do you think the U.S. is promoting nuclear power right now? Well, I think it's about um, the money for Western nuclear industry, because it, it was a long time ago when investors stopped to invest into nuclear because, well, it's risky, it's always over budget, it, it's taking long to build them. It was a pretty much economic disaster uh, in the past. So investors don't want to put money in it anymore. And uh, what governments obviously came up with is to push for nuclear power here at the climate negotiations just for one simple reason, to be able to take money from a climate fund and use it for construction of new nuclear power plants. It's not about climate. It's about saving mostly Western nuclear industry. Uh, when I was in uh, Rivna and Lviv in Ukraine a few years ago after the Katowice UN Climate Summit, um, there were monuments to the people of Chernobyl, mm -hmm. and they are all over um, Ukraine um, and Russia, and Russia um, well. if you can talk about the significance of Chernobyl shaping your opposition to nuclear power, and then how you see renewable energy being the answer, even in the short term. 
Well, um, when when we speak about climate change and what we're going to do about it, then renewable energy obviously is the first choice uh, for a reason that it's cheaper than nuclear. It's much faster to, to be installed, so means gives you much faster result in uh, or effect in emission reduction. This is what we are looking for today. Um, nuclear is a risky technology. We had Fukushima, we had Chernobyl before it. Chernobyl basically... Um, led to a collapse of the Soviet Union in the end. Chernobyl provoked the um, new civil society movements, anti-nuclear movements in the Soviet Union that became active and in the end of 1980s succeeded to actually entirely stop the development of nuclear power in the Soviet Union. It was later restarted, mostly when the Putin came in, that it went on a mass scale. Yeah. Can you talk about um, what's happening at these climate talks? Do you hold out hope? And also a new report that's just been released on the environmental effects of Russia's invasion and war on Ukraine. Well, uh, first of all, about this climate talks, uh, it's a scandal by design because the president of this COP is actually a head of a big oil company, one of the leading in the world. So the guy who's supposed to push other countries to reach an agreement on ending fossil fuel is actually interested in promotion of oil contracts for his company. So I don't know how much, if, how mu what kind of uh, result we can expect from this COP. Uh, and uh, it's true that a um, couple of days ago, Ukraine presented an assessment of um, environmental damage from a war uh, in Ukraine, the Russian war in Ukraine. And um, uh, the representatives of Ukrainian states said that there was nearly 3,000 of environmental crimes conducted by Russian army, worth of over 60 billion of American dollars. It's not total. Uh, cost of a war, of course, or the damage from the war. It's only environmental cost of a war. And in this included, um, there are about 150 million of tons of CO2 that was additionally emitted because of this war that would never happen without war. So uh, a Ukrainian state um, assess this greenhouse gases emission uh, as a worth of uh, about 12 billion of dollars and this what they want right now they want international community to ask russia for uh, or to push russia for reparations including this uh well 12 billion for uh, additional co2 emissions and this over 60 billion for environmental damage that was caused by the war and right now ukrainian state wants to really push the united nations to create a structure that will come up with some kind of a scheme how these reparations from russia could be taken finally would you be able to say these things in russia and when did you leave Absolutely not. Russia is, uh, in my opinion, it's a fascist state that you can easily compare to uh, Nazi Germany from the 20th century, from the Second World War. All kinds of activists are under repression. I mean, it's every day that we're getting news that somebody else got to jail or there is a new criminal case. Everybody under pressure uh, from the state. It's a feminist activist, LGBT activist, environmental activist, human rights activist. Putin regime is just mad about civil society. It, it wants the end of a civil society. So if you decide to criticize Putin and Russia, you will just immediately go to jail. 
I want to thank you so much for being with us, Vladimir Slivyak, co-chair of the Russian environmental organization EcoDefense 2021 Right Livelihood Award winner. Um, and we will link to uh, your reports at democracynow.org. Latest news, Norman Lear has died at the age of 101. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks for joining us.